We've got the government trying to tell us who can jump like a kangaroo. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, today joined by uh, Dara Lind and the great Jane Coaston. And uh, we would like to talk about some issues that are in the air around political correctness and what people feel they can't say and, and the idea that maybe smug and or intolerant progressives are causing radicalization of, of conservatives. But if you are, if you are extremely online, as, as I am, and many of us here at the office are. I think a, a starting point for a lot of this was a, a recent um, Barry Weiss article in, in the New York Times about what she called the intellectual dark web, which is a, a provocative, but I, I think sort of grandiose term. And I, I don't know, Jane, like, can you... Like, what, what is, is a dark web? So there's like the actual dark web. I mean, the dark web, web is where you get like illicit child porn, Yes, right? it's where you get illicit child porn and like try to order hits on people. But this <laughs> is this is not that dark web. And honestly, I, I really enjoyed a moment in my head in which the two intersected. And you, you had a hilarious moment in which Jordan Peterson tries to buy like machine guns. But that's not what this is. So the quote-unquote intellectual dark web is supposed to be this group of people who are having the conversations that no one else will have about really terrifying subjects. And it includes people who consider themselves more on the right, like Ben Shapiro, and people who think of themselves as being more on the left, like there are a couple of other figures I think Jordan Peterson would probably consider himself like he's very concerned about the left, but I don't think he considers himself conservative exactly. Let's see, Christina Hoff Summers, I believe, and a couple of other people. And it's all has to do with people who are willing to say terrifying things like feminism is bad. To what extent is this an actual group of people who are talking to each other and hanging out together? Because it seems to me that the concept of the intellectual dark web and some of the characterizations of this have been like, they're all members of a social club and they talk civilly to each other because no one else will talk civilly to them. But there are also indications that these are just people who Barry Weiss decided were intellectual pariahs and so she came up with a framing device. So allegedly, per Weiss's piece, the who is part of this was kind of determined by the fact that there's a website that lists all of these people. Um, some of these people do hang like hang out. And by hang out, I mean like do podcasts together. Like I think Sam Harris has done podcasts with Ben Shapiro. And a lot of these people kind of talk to each other. And then there are the people who got very upset online about how they are also part of the intellectual dark web, but were not included in Barry Weiss's piece because they're too dark. Yeah, yeah I, they're just too I, dark. I, I think it's worth quoting her her lead paragraph, which I yes. think sums yeah. up the perspective of this article and also what I think is insane about it. So she writes, here are some things that you will hear when you sit down to dinner with the vanguard of the intellectual dark web. Colon. There are fundamental biological differences between men and women. Free speech is under siege. Identity politics is a toxic ideology that is tearing American society apart. And we're in a dangerous place if these ideas are considered dark. So I think that's like a great thesis statement, right? Because it contains a mix of 
what I consider to be an incredibly banal observation. For example, there are fundamental biological differences between men and women. And I know it is a true fact that like there is a group of people who believe that this has become a taboo thing to say and that you will be like drummed out of society for saying it. So every couple of months or so now, I tweet that I believe there are on average some significant differences between men and women and like nothing bad happens to me. Like no bolts of lightning strike me down. This is, I think, actually a widely known and agreed upon fact. And people are taking a disagreement with some other aspect of queer theory or something, I don't know what, and like reframing it as like people like men are taller than women. Women can have babies. Like it's it's there's a there's like a real difference here. But then it leaps to Identity politics is a toxic ideology that is tearing American society apart, which I think is like that is a genuinely contentious statement. Like I don't think that that is true. It's a little ambiguous um, but also just like I don't know like toxic tearing – like those are, those are like big words, like big, bold, controversial claims. And to me, that's like the essence of this is this like – ambiguation between on the one hand I think this group of figures and you and you saw this Sam Sam Harris is named as a as a dark webber and I think you really saw this in his dispute with with Ezra about Charles Murray is this tendency to hop between a like fairly banal claim and a really contentious one and to treat them as if they are exactly equivalent. Well, I think, I mean, to be more specific, I feel like the move here is to make the banal claim to assert that the banal claim is somehow contentious. Because you're making that assertion, people who are aware of the ongoing disputes about, say, the extent to which biological differences between men and women can explain current differences in outcomes between men and women and how much of that is socialization and like many actual scientists saying we genuinely don't have the answers to this. So because someone is coming out there and saying I'm going to make a controversial claim, there are fundamental biological differences, other people hear that in the context in which it's meant to be received, which is what I actually mean is that fundamental biological differences are an underrated source of the differences between men and women that we see in society today. And so they are taking that and saying, okay, yeah, we see what you're saying and actually what you're saying is contentious and wrong. And then because of that blowback, the, you know, the intellectual dark Weber response is, but all I was making was this anodyne scientific claim, you are trying to deny any conversation about the science. So it's very important, you know, slippage between a statement that is part of an ongoing conversation that is controversial because it's in the context of an ongoing conversation and this willful denial of, I don't understand why you thought I said this thing. That's not, those aren't the words I used, which is what allows people to believe that they are somehow being shut out of a discourse that that these theses are being denied. What my question about all of this is that was like, If you hear those statements in the midst of, like, a dinner conversation, maybe I'm just not having the right conversations, but, like, those are the kind of things that don't spur conversation. They shut them down. Like, either you agree with that or you don't. If you don't agree with it, then, yeah, there are lots of things you can talk about. Uh, But it doesn't appear that that's what the intellectual dark web is. It appears that it's, like, essentially a safe space for saying things that other people aren't going to like. And what I don't understand with this is how you can say these people are having really robust 
lost conversations rather than these people are talking to each other because no one else will talk to them. Right. And I also think, Matt, you mentioned being super online. And if you want a group of people that is the most online, like, can you imagine really believing that no one will say that feminism might be bad? And I'm like, do you not have conversations with people who live in like other places? Like this idea that because a group of students at a college you'd never heard of shut down your free speech, like free speech is under attack. When I'm like, did did you not think about this other place or these many other places where, you know, most people aren't on Twitter having these debates? You know, there are people who are having delightful times over on like Instagram or talking person to person. And it just seems to be this idea of being oh, we're under attack is so popular that but then that becomes the identifier, which is why I think Barry Weiss gets into later the idea that like you can't have conversational guardrails. And then you get into like later in the article where some of the people were like, OK, maybe we need like one guardrail. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it is definitely true, right, that, I mean, if you were to say, what what holds this group of people together? Because you look at the range of actual political opinions held by Sam Harris, Eric Weinstein, uh, Dave Rubin, Jordan Peterson, uh, Ben Shapiro, who are lumped together here is genuinely quite wide. But they are held together by a sense of this kind of persecution notion, right? That like forms them together as an identity group and it is something that other people then respond to in turn. Like I happen to think that's the the most clearly ridiculous thing about this political tendency is that you have like Steven Pinker who like writes best-selling books that are blurbed by Bill Gates and has tenure at Harvard feels very strongly that he is like under attack from other people in like a, a stifling way that, that that seems very odd to me. But I think one core thesis here is worth talking about in a non-meta way, right? And that's the claim that identity politics is a toxic ideology that is tearing American society apart. This is not at all like a, a dark web thesis. Like I have read it many times in New York Times op-eds. It's a, it's a widely held opinion. Uh, but precisely because it's a widely held opinion, I think it's worth – talking about on its own terms rather than in meta terms because I think that that's like a lot of what is is really going on here is that there is a group of – I mean they will say this is an example of identity politics tearing American society apart but a group of white men who do not want to see themselves as like reactionaries but are nonetheless very upset about – trends in, in you know, the discourse, uh, particularly on the left, and are increasingly forming their own political identity around being rubbed the wrong way by what they see as, as identity politics. And I have mixed feelings about this as a, as a statement. Yeah. So I think that there are two different vectors here. Um, this is one particular genre of a broader conversation about the extent to which white men feel that, you know, contemporary society is trying to hold them back as a way to put others forward. Uh, you know, there is enough 
social science out there about men feeling or about, you know, not actually just men, about people feeling that women are speaking a majority of the time when they're actually speaking a minority of the time. Uh, there was somebody did an analysis of a recent podcast that you and I, Matt, did with Jen Williams when we were doing the Worldly Crossover. And I actually remember that podcast as thinking that I was talking way too much. And it turns out that Jen and I had spoken a combined 50 percent of the time. I don't know if that's counting ads and stuff, which we make you read because you're better at reading ads than I am. But like it was a very useful reminder for me that that dynamic really is very well internalized. And the other fact of the matter is that when you're moving from a society in which white men have all of the space in public life to one in which they have a proportional amount of space in public life, that means they are reducing their influence. And for individual white men, that is in fact going to mean that you do not have the opportunities that your ancestors would have had a generation ago. That is a broader dynamic. What is going on in this in particular, though, is this is the instantiation of that dynamic among people who make a living having opinions. And I think that's a really important point to make, both because of what Jane brought up, which I want to put a pin in because I think we'll get into it a bunch later about the extent to which other people are even, you know, this even reflects the conversation that is going on among people who are not extremely online. But also because when you are making your living having opinions, being shouted down if you try to speak on campus or being fired from a position as a columnist really is a blow to your well-being and your professional conception and your livelihood, it also does not mean you are being censored. It just means that in your preferred sphere of, you know, in your preferred profession, you are having some obstacles thrown in your way. I personally think that if you're doing this for a living, you have to accept that you're going to get a lot of blowback. I have spent a lot of the last 24 hours getting some very angry emails from people who believe that I somehow quoted Donald Trump out of context by posting a partial transcript of a roundtable on the internet. I delete those emails. I understand that those emails are in bad faith, and I try not to let them get me down, and I understand that it's part of the job. It's literally part of what I'm being paid to do. I personally don't have a ton of sympathy for the idea that I am not able to do my job properly or that there is somehow a problem with the people who are responding to me negatively. At the same time, though, I think it is worth kind of understanding that if someone is making a living having provocative opinions and the provocation of the opinions is what gives someone prominence, like, say, Jordan Peterson, who nobody would have heard of if he hadn't gone off on a bunch of college students in Canada about their preferred gender pronouns, whether you're actually being censored and how big these obstacles are is not all downside and no upside for these people, right? The, the fact that they're getting this big glowing profile in the New York Times is maybe an indication that they're successfully making a brand for themselves in a media ecosystem. And so I'm not even sure that it's fair to call this the exact same as a typical white dude who is seeing that he does not have the power in society that he would have had 30 years ago. I also think as someone, you know, I spend a lot of my time writing and talking to conservatives and talking about the right. And this is something that's come up a bunch. First and foremost, I do want to note that there are some non-white people who consider themselves part of the intellectual dark web. That's true. Um, so just to be clear on that, and some women who mm -hmm. think of themselves as that also. But I also, I think it's so interesting because this idea that Weiss puts forward or that the kind of the members of the intellectual dark web, so to speak, put forward that they're having like all oh, these big debates and controversial conversations. I don't know if any of you have ever actually watched like 
Dave Rubin's show, which is generally someone comes on and Dave Rubin agrees with everything they say. Because his entire thing is like, oh, I'll let the viewer decide. But if you're having someone like Milo Yiannopoulos or like Stefan Mel, whomever, whatever, or like, you know, at a certain point, just sitting there and letting someone just be like, you know, I think that ethnic cleansing might not be that bad. And maybe feminism actually is a cancer. And you're sitting there being like, "Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's not a robust debate. That's just sort of a stump speech given while sitting down. And so I think it's interesting that this concept, they see the like robust debate because they're having conversations with each other, but that's not a debate. That's just sort of like an agreeable time while sitting. Right. And it's not like there's not a way to address these in a more discursive manner. Alice Drager, who's Hardly an example of a political correctness warrior. She's a researcher who's been attacked for some of her work on gender identity among children. Actually wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education where she revealed that she'd been approached for this piece and had ultimately asked them not to include her, both because she didn't socially know these people who she was being cast as part of and because she considers herself a scholar first. Even if she doesn't actually have a full-time position in academia right now, but she thinks that the virtues of her work are about humility. They're about saying, what don't we know? And how can we talk about what we think we know in a way that makes it clear that we're not 100% certain about everything we're putting forward? And I'll put this in the show notes because it's a really compelling essay to me. It's, you know, making the point that if you're actually committed to having a conversation about uncomfortable truths, like the extent to which people's self-proclaimed political identities are short-circuiting a lot of the rational discussion about what can we agree to as a society and can we have a you know, cohesive pluralistic society if people's identities are the most important part of their interactions with others. Those are discussions that we can have, but they have to come from a position of, well, we don't know everything. And the way that we speak with more confidence is by learning more things, not just by demanding that other people listen to us. Yeah, but so I want to try to like bring this I know, I know, I know. We're because, getting like, medic. I, it is true. Like, I stipulate, because I don't want us to do the intellectual dark work thing where we all disagree. Like, I think that the claims of persecution that these people make about themselves, their self-representation of their project, like, that is wrong. I agree. At the same time, here's, like, you, you Dara, you were talking about sort of, like, the branding strategy here, which I think, like, is very clear with Jordan Peterson, right? And frankly, like, I recommend some of his his YouTube videos explaining, like, basic personality psychometrics like he's a good like youtube guy he has a lot of like interesting but not that unusual ideas uh, but he got like really famous because he insists on misgendering trans students and he has like really strong feelings about this but also people on the other side have really strong feelings about this too like they are not willing to say here is a uh, psychology professor who is on the older side and happens to be like really cranky about this one slightly esoteric topic he is instead there is a i would say sort of tendency in left circles to engage in tactics of rhetoric inflation when people do things like this that they don't like. So Jordan Peterson having a view that would have been considered almost universally held a generation ago and is probably held by most people today, right? Like there are two genders. You're either a boy or a girl and it is what it is, right? Like that's just like not an unusual thing to believe, like whether you think it's true or not. 
And there's a question in my mind of whether – like is the best strategy for countering a viewpoint like that if you think it's wrong to be like, aha, this guy's a Nazi, right? Because like I really do see – a lot of that. And I think the viewpoint is that by adopting the most strident, most stigmatizing kind of language to characterize people who you think are being wrong, you are going to successfully marginalize this commonly held viewpoint. And I think another viewpoint that Weiss exhibits and, and that expresses and that I have some sympathy for is like, look, if you tell everyone who says something that you find a little bit problematic that they are a Nazi, like you are encouraging people to move to further and further right and more and more extreme positions, not just like fancy intellectuals but like regular people who don't have incredibly advanced ideas about issues that don't – that aren't relevant to themselves in their personal lives. I think that – the argument for the tactic you're describing about specifically calling out Jordan Peterson, you know, in this context is there are some spaces that are controlled partially by socially progressive forces. And in order to make people of marginalized identities feel comfortable in those spaces, you have to maximize the extent to which people who are going to make them feel uncomfortable are made to feel uncomfortable themselves. That's a like you control the things you can control kind of mindset. I think that that's different from a conversation about can someone ever make a mistake without getting drummed out of the movement. I think that there actually are fairly robust conversations among social justice warriors about like calling out versus calling in. And when do you say to somebody, hey, you just screwed up, by the way, you just made this person feel really uncomfortable. You should learn some stuff and not do that again versus when do you say, oh my gosh, that's such a reactionary thing to say. You're calling yourself a progressive, but clearly you don't understand how oppression works. Those conversations within these spaces are really robust, but there is a pretty strong consensus that if you haven't already strongly identified yourself as on the side of the angels, so to speak, that you should be left out to the wilderness. I want to take a break because I think that that's a conversation that I kind of like want Jane to lead us into after that. Are you paying attention, like really paying attention, not just to this podcast, but to everything? If you're not listening to podcasts, you're reading about the latest ideas and issues in the world, often like in a favorite magazine. And you can get all the magazines that matter with this amazing app called Texture. It brings together a whole bunch of the top publishers. They have over 200 top magazines all in one place. You get complete issues and back issues for the Atlantic, the New Yorker, all in one app. And if that's like a little heavy, you got your People, Cosmo, Entertainment Weekly, all that kind of stuff. The big names like highbrow, lowbrow, all that stuff, it's all in there. They deliver the best of both worlds with newsworthy stories and relaxing entertainment. A magazine is a great place to find quality journalism and beautiful photos, but with texture, you also get like the basic convenience of a smartphone. My phone, it's probably not that dissimilar to yours. It is a lot smaller than a magazine. It is definitely smaller than a huge stack packages of a magazine. Their tablet app, if you have an iPad, is just gorgeous. It's fantastic. So take a deep dive into the issues you care about with Texture. So here's the deal. It's usually $9.99 a month, which when you think about it, is actually a fantastic deal. But we have a better deal for you. Uh, to get seven days of free access, go to texture.com slash weeds. Go to texture.com slash weeds. Start reading the latest issues of your favorite magazine today for free for seven days. Texture.com slash weeds. 
So I think this is something I actually had a bit of a Twitter argument with Barry Weiss about in terms of the idea that, you know, if you call someone a Nazi, you are essentially pushing them towards Nazism. And my biggest response is just like, you know, we and I've, I've seen arguments from uh, the Atlantic's Connor Friesdorf and from others who are saying like, well, it happens on the left, too. And I'm like, not. But there aren't like mainstream conservative publications arguing that, you know, us calling Barack Obama a Marxist for eight years is what got us Bernie Sanders in a prominent political position. But also the idea that like you got called a Nazi on Twitter and thus you just decided to frolic merrily towards the world of Richard Spencer is just like, no, no, you have agency. You have decisions to make. You had the ability to say, you know what? I'm not a Nazi. But, you know, and I know that. And you probably know that because this is Twitter and this is the land of which we say things that we don't entirely mean or blow things up or use terminology that isn't really fair. But I'm a big enough human being to not think, hmm, Nazism, that's an ideology I'd like to get behind. And just this idea that I think is just rife across, I'd say, you know, we saw multiple articles in the New York Times about it, this idea of like, oh, liberals, you know, don't be so smug. That's what's pushing people towards Trump. And I'm like, no, like... The idea that what got us Trump was liberals being like slightly not nice is just like one, an absurd reductionist argument, which just ignores just a lot of things about how the 2016 election actually happened. It turns out a lot of people didn't vote for Trump because they were like, oh, man, that Katy Perry annoyed me slightly. And this idea that like legacy publications calling someone alt-right when they're not is going to push someone. I'm like, wow, you are really overestimating the importance of Vanity Fair. And I just, I cannot tell you how much it irritates me, this concept that conservatives who are supposed to be, you know, facts don't care about your feelings and we're strong and stalwart and American, but apparently the most easily injured group of people on earth, like they're baby ducklings with helmets on. So I agree with that, right? There is something profoundly hypocritical about the new conservative mobilization in favor of safe spaces and uh, greater attention to the delicate sensibilities of working class white Americans. But anytime you see a group of people being hypocrites, right, there's the question of like which side of the hypocrisy coin is the correct one. And like to me, there is an incredible hypocrisy about the same people who are like, fuck your feelings, being like, but pay more attention to my feelings. But like the pay more attention to my feelings part, I think is right. Like I think that if you frame this as like groups on the right can see that there is something insightful and true about left-wing discourse, about the importance of being sensitive to people's feelings and they want in on it, that like that makes a lot of sense to me. I wrote something. I forget even what I was saying. And then somebody else was like, Iglesias is basically saying that Democrats need to do more to cater to white fragility. And like that, yes, that was exactly what I was saying. <laughs> like exactly as left-wing people would say, white fragility is a real social phenomenon. And like if an electorate is overwhelmingly white and you want to win elections in that electorate, then like, yes, you do. You do have to cater to white fragility. You don't have to like it. 
you don't have to think that's like an admirable facet of society, but like the left diagnosis of how things work like is correct and needs to be in some ways like lived up to. So there are two different ways that I can imagine this being true. And I, I want to know what each of you guys, like which one, if either you guys think is true. There's the in individual level where I can understand it. If like, if 20 year old X goes to a bunch of lefties and go, says, but why isn't like, I can see that men and women have basic differences. What's wrong with that? And they say, oh my God, you're a misogynist. Shut the hell up. And then goes to the right and says, please explain this to me. I'm not sure that I believe that like women should be in the kitchen, but I believe this thing. And the right goes, aha, you're halfway there. Let us explain to you. I, that is that is a model of the world that I can understand, although I'm not sure it's true. There's also this bigger political argument, which is if the messages that you are getting from the left, from the Democratic Party, are that people like you are bad and should feel ashamed, you are going to feel more liable to react to those feelings. That identity is going to become more politically salient. You're more likely to show up to vote against Democrats than you would be if you didn't feel personally attacked. Again, I can understand that being true. I'm not sure that I understand that being more true now than it would have been in, say, 2004, when the idea that Democrats didn't love America was, like, literally the animating feature of a presidential campaign. But I don't think that both of those are—they're not identical things, right? And I want to know, for you guys, as people who are thinking about this, not just as, like, a discourse on the internet, but in politics— is either of them legitimate? Which one is actually the way that things work? I think the second one. To, to me, actually, Dare's number two is the key issue here. Something I think about a lot is Rick Perry in the uh, 2012 primary um, is up there and he's being attacked by conservatives for a bill he signed that gave undocumented kids in Texas in-state tuition. And, you know, this is obviously like not a popular position among conservatives. On the other hand, like he was running against Mitt Romney who like had signed the Affordable Care. You, you know, nobody out there was like devoid of potential weaknesses in terms of their true conservative orthodoxy. But what Perry said on the debate stage under attack was that if you don't see the importance of providing an education to these kids, you have no heart, right? And so that flips it from, look, it's a big country, right? There's hundreds of millions of people here. Like nobody is voting for a politician who they agree with about literally everything under the sun. Mitt Romney throughout that whole campaign, he never said – if you think I made the, the wrong call in signing that law in Massachusetts, you are a bad person, mm -hmm. right? Perry basically – this is not what he meant to do. Like Perry was not good at live debates. But it's telling. Perry didn't defend his position and he didn't deflect from his position. What he did was he attacked people who disagreed with him, right? And that's not very savvy it seems to me. And if you look at like Hillary Clinton and the deplorables thing, which I think is really key here, again, it was a thing where like there's a bunch of issues in politics and like one way you can try to put yourself forward is like in the whole range of issues that exist here, I think that 
you should see me as better on like the bulk of the portfolio. And Hillary like never tried to indicate at any point that like if you thought her position on the minimum wage was incorrect, that that reflected a fundamental moral failing of yours. It was like one of many positions that she had. But she, I think, made very clear in a sort of normal social justice warrior kind of way that if you disagreed with her on race and gender issues, that that was an egregious moral failing on your part and she wanted nothing to do with you. And to an extent, like she got what she asked for there, you know, that like a certain number of socially conservative, economically progressive, not particularly religious, northern white working class people who had voted for Barack Obama and had voted for John Kerry headed for the exit doors like to which they were shown. Um, And we can say like you see these like ferocious online debates where people are like – well, you know, like they're racist. Like should we pander to their whatever? And like, I don't know, like maybe you shouldn't, but like also maybe maybe you want to win. I also think that there's kind of a line I want to draw that is I personally, and thank God for it, am never going to be asked to run a political campaign. Like the things that I say in general are not to be like, you know, if some 2020 Democratic candidate was like, Jane, would you like to design my candidacy? I would say no, because I like being angry on the Internet and I don't want you to stop me from being angry on the Internet. And I I do understand the kind of, you know, you need to make it seem as if like we hold different values, but we all love America. And this is just my policy. And if you don't agree with my policy, like, do you love America? I'm pretty fond of America. Awesome. Like, I'm I'm pretty into America. She's got her issues, but, you know, (laughs) pretty into her. But um, I think that there's an idea, and it's something I see a lot in conservatism, which is so interesting to me, the idea that, like, person who commentates on a thing is, ergo, a leader within the Democratic Party. Yes. And this is something that happens a lot with uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who, within National Review, I joked yesterday, that... I think within like the world of Weekly Standard, National Review, Red State, Daily Wire, he is like Magneto. He is incredibly powerful. He is running the Democratic Party. He's choosing candidates. I'm like, wow, it's amazing. He gets all that done and still has time to like work on comic books. Like this concept that like, no, 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 you know, no one wants to hear from like actual Democratic politicians, but the actual real leaders of the Democratic Party in the United States are a guy who writes for The Atlantic and this pop star or this other random person who may not even be an American citizen. Because it's like, oh, this English pop star said this, ergo, that's the Democratic Party platform. But I think that it's interesting just the idea of who, where this messaging is coming from and who is considered this dangerous other. I think that that's something I want to kind of get back to a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, this idea that, you know, obviously I, I feel pretty comfortable in saying what I think. And saying like, quote unquote, controversial opinions. And, you know, I do not think that the Democratic Party would need to be responsible for me as, you know, neither would like the Republican Party or the Libertarian Party. Um, they, They would not need to be responsible for the things I say. And I think it's interesting that somehow college students protesting a speaker at a college you've never heard of are somehow like that's on the democratic party or i'm like i don't i don't understand how that could be a thing 
And I think that's an important line to draw that, you know, I am not trying to win a presidential campaign. Right. So let, let's put this yeah, squarely in, in this specific case, because I think we just had a lot of this yesterday, right? There was this right. there was this imbroglio about Trump and referring to people as animals and some ambiguity as to exactly what he was saying because about— Because he's Donald Trump and he doesn't speak in paragraphs. Right. Regardless of the, the, the specifics, a— common response to it, right, was some people were just saying, like, I think the media has mischaracterized this, which is an interesting thing to debate. But another thing that some people said, I think John Podoritz said it, like, in exactly these words, is that, like, this is how we got Donald Trump, right? And this is to Jane's point, right? The contention wasn't that Chuck Schumer characterized this Trump statement in a certain way, and therefore people were going to vote for Republican Senate candidates. The contention certainly wasn't that Joe Manchin had characterized it that way. It was that liberals and or nonpartisan media figures who conservatives hazily associate with cultural liberalism had characterized this in a certain way, and that Democratic Party elected officials were going to pay a price at the polls for it. And this is a common sentiment, right, that like people who like do takes should be held accountable in the way that you would hold a candidate for office accountable. And that does seem like a just like a misconstruction of the roles. So it is, on the other hand, uh, again, having been on the receiving end of what is for me a surprising amount of hate mail over the last 24 hours, like I think that it's not wrong as a description of a political dynamic, right? Like right. the fact that the deplorables comment was such a big thing is because if that hadn't happened, it's really like Hillary Clinton ran what was other than that, not the most red mediaist campaign. Yeah, she gave the whole speech about the alt-right, but like nothing in her speech about the alt-right was as big a deal as the deplorables comment. Because a lot of people are not high information voters and do not pay attention to policy on a daily basis, it's very easy for them to understand semantic debates and symbolic debates in which everyone they already agree with is lined up on one side and everyone they're already inclined to distrust is lined up on the other. It is not escaping me that the things that I get blowback from when I write about immigration are not the things the Trump administration is actually doing. Like when I write about the policy of prosecution and family separation at the border, when I write about who's getting deported, I'll get like a couple of things, but not a ton. It's when I write about Donald Trump saying things. And that says to me, A, that maybe the people who are really gung-ho about Trump don't actually care as much about using the government machinery to make their vision of America a reality, as a lot of policymakers might assume, but B, that these are the things that are really riling them up and that can be most successfully used, you know, to to get them to the polls in November. So I, I think that this is a correct description of a dynamic. I also think it's extremely bad for America because the people who are voting based on, yeah, it's really important to call out MS-13 for being animals are voting for an administration that is doing a lot of things with the power of being the government that 
aren't being noticed or cheered by the people who supposedly back them and that are having very real impacts on this totally different group of people who don't even get to vote. And that, I think, is kind of where we get into culture war as a mode of politics being worrisome for me. It's not just that, like, oh, it's bad for the discourse or it's a mistake of our role as journalists. It's that I would really like people who claim to care so much about Democrats being soft on MS-13 to care a little more about the policies that are actually happening to people's lives based on that assertion. So I had the pleasure this week of reading a very short book that was supposed to be the MAGA guide to the midterms. And the in, the intro was written by Michael Flynn. And part of it is that the author says, you know, I stopped caring about policy a long time ago. I used to read foreign policy magazine, these other things. And I just stopped doing it because I just don't care anymore. And throughout the little pamphlet, there are moments at which the book seems to exist in a world in which on election day we all went to sleep and then we all woke up like on Tuesday of this week in which nothing has actually happened. And it's very much about like, oh, we got to limit the power of pharmaceutical companies and it's time to clean up our waterways and it's time to really take action on like putting more money into urban schools. At a very much, I was like, do you know who Donald Trump is? Where Have you, have you been somewhere else for the past two years? I'm fascinated by this. There is very much a kind of culture, and I think to your point, that's kind of there is a culture war that exists both above and below policy Mm -hmm. to which a lot of people who, you know, I talk a lot to, you know, conservatives who think of themselves as not being conservatives, but they're giant Trump fans. So they started to kind of just be like, ah, yes, you know, we're changing conservatism. And then you ask them about like, oh, so, you know, what were your thoughts on the omnibus bill? Mm -hmm. And then they're like, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, you know, that massive spending bill that to their mild credit, actual conservatives, even of kind of the Ann Coulter variety, were very upset about because it, the expansion of government spending is something that is kind of the the thing that conservatives have been mad about for years and years and years and years. And to which they just like, oh, well, you know, Trump signed it, so it must have been a good idea. And this idea of, you know, a policy-free conceptualization of this administration and other administrations. Because, you know, when you got down to it, I think that that was actually a big mistake that a lot of people made, um, like a lot of journalists made in 2015 and 2016, is trying to actually have this big like, okay, what does Hillary think about this specific issue? And what does Trump think about this specific issue? And without recognizing that for a lot of people, they just didn't actually care. Yeah. Just to quickly point out, it's I do not think this is unique to conservatives. Oh, my God. Do I not think it's unique to conservatives? And I don't think it's necessarily particularly new. Right. I think that what we might be seeing that is new is that because partisan identification is getting more important and parties are getting more ideologically sorted, the extent to which this can serve as any given culture war fight can serve as a proxy for a political fight. That's a stronger identity than we've seen before. It would not have been the case 20 years ago that the president of the United States picking on a a former NFL quarterback for kneeling during the national anthem would be seen as a political fight, and now it is. Well, so this is where I I think I I, I loop back to the sort of core 
intriguing intellectual dark web uh, proposition. And that's the idea that identity politics is tearing the country apart, right? Because on one level, like, I, I think this is right. Like, I think what Dara was saying before, what, what Jane, what you're saying is that, like, Yes, that like the subsumation of all partisan conflict into a hazy, all-encompassing culture war is making it difficult for people to think critically about the actual work of the American government in specific ways and that that is not good or healthy, right, for American society. But like the phrasing that Weiss gave to this idea and the phrasing that I think a lot of dark web people will use, it carries a – there's like a, a parenthetical, right, which is like the domination of politics by a gigantic culture war is bad, parentheses, and it's the fault of feminists and minority activists, Right, like calling it that, right? Whereas like a, a similar viewpoint, right? Like I might say it's like a surging tide of white nationalism is tearing the country apart, right? And that would be a, a left-wing way of characterizing the same situation. And causal attribution is obviously important in life. Although in some ways, this to me is actually another example of the phenomenon that is being deplored, right? That like if there is agreement that like it would be preferable for politics to be toned down a little bit and made a little more concrete and made a little more specific and a little more down to earth, it is more important – like that there is agreement on that premise than that there is agreement on exactly what verbal formula you use to express the idea. So I think that identity politics as it's been used as a conservative bugaboo for the last two decades is not actually about people conscripting themselves in a never-ending culture war. It's about this idea that Parts of your identity, like your race, your gender, your class, your sexual orientation, to identify those as an important part of your experience and something that makes it extremely difficult for someone who has not had those experiences to understand what you are going through and, you know, to be able to, to challenge you on how much they've affected you result in this very weird, you know, arithmetic of they often call this intersectionality. It's not actually what intersectionality is, but this idea of like, you know, building your identity through these building blocks in a way that makes it impossible for people to talk to each other. That's very, very different from the relevant social identity being social justice warrior. But I also think that the argument being made by the intellectual dark webbers is that every space in civil society should be held to the same standards as political discourse. It's not just that the temperature in politics needs to go down. It's that the temperature in all public spaces needs to adhere to the kind of cool-headed pluralistic rationality that people want political debate to have. And I'm that's a much more contentious proposition. It is not clear to me that people who need to be sympathetic toward others in the context of like political debate also need to be exactly as cool-headed and sympathetic toward others when you're talking about what happens in your dorm common room. Right. And I also think that there's a whole, you know, I think that this is one of those things that about which I could talk about for many years and will not do so. But the, the, what the conversations that like the intellectual dark web has among each other, what those subjects don't include is of deep interest to me. And I think that there was a great piece in Splinter and there have been a lot of, you know, writings on kind of the more progressive left about the fact that, you know, 
actually controversial opinions that are not easily agreed to or are like valued by most Americans. You know, those are the ones that get people in actual trouble. Like there's been, you know, new research and a lot of more information about how the FBI is going off quote-unquote, black identity activists. And, you know, there was someone who was arrested by the FBI for posting something on Facebook. And this is someone who's very much of kind of, you know, Black Lives Matter and things like that. And this is someone whose free speech is actually being curtailed. And, you know, that would be something that if this took place, you know, if this happened to a hypothetical Jordan Peterson or something like that, there would be gnashing of teeth and wailing into the skies. And yet you you see these moments where it's just very much like they have circled the wagons. And what happens within the wagon circle, they're very interested in having these conversations about, you know, whether or not Charles Murray getting shouted down at college you cannot afford to go to slash have not heard of is like of deep importance. But then if you're outside of that wagon circle, if you are someone whose free speech is actually being limited, if you are someone who is actually being subjected to government-based violence, well, that that's just not as interesting to this group of people. And I, I'm like, I don't understand, you know, an actual hypothetical intellectual dark web should say things that are actually intellectual and or dark. And that's just not, not what's happening here. It's almost as if it's, if a salient part of your identity is your profession being a, an opinionator who like says things in the media, the issues that affect people who say things in the media are going to seem more salient to you than other issues because your identity has shaped your worldview. Gee, Willikers. I, so, I, I would both of you guys so much about that, right? And like, I think that's that's clearly true. At the same time, like I, I think there you're taking a overly highbrow view of like what identity politics, quote unquote, consists of in in this viewpoint. And like here's just like a, a little example that I think about all the time because it's about a boring technical issue that is near and dear to my heart. And it's that um, Matthew Desmond uh, last year had like a big piece in the New York Times and it was about the mortgage interest tax deduction and how this is a, a bad policy. Um, and I agree that it's a bad policy. And one of the things that he does in the course of sort of marshalling his argument about it is he talks about how this policy exacerbates the racial wealth gap uh, between black and and white Americans, uh, which it does mechanically, right? Because mortgage interest tax deduction is a a regressive policy, right? It basically subsidizes the rich at the expense of the poor. The rich are disproportionately white. The poor are disproportionately black. So it is true that anything that advantages the rich over the poor also advantages white people over black people. It's clear from the construction of the article that like Desmond believes that putting this race fact in makes his argument more compelling, right? Like he is trying to add ammunition. And I think that if you think about the context of a college campus, that is very much correct, right? That like on campus, if I am to – were to say to you, objectively speaking, this idea helps wealthy people more than it helps poor people, that's like an idea that we can talk about. Like maybe I'm right, maybe you're wrong. But like elite college campuses typically have admissions policies that advantage wealthy people over poor people. I think they are aware that that's what happens and like they're not changing their mind about it. Whereas if I can make a persuasive argument that you are doing something racist, 
in the context of a college campus, that really is a knockdown argument, right? So it's like it's good to find ways to inject a race angle into your argument. That makes your argument stronger. It makes you more likely to win. So as a question of pragmatics, if you are like schooled in intra-campus disputes, like look for the race angle and like try to make this about race is smart strategy. If you're thinking about tax policy though, right? Like do you want people to think of the mortgage interest tax deduction as something that helps rich people or do you want them to think of it as something that helps white people, right? Like there are a lot more white people than there are rich people and you are in this case like deliberately framing this in the wrong way that like it used to be that the way you would think about this is, okay, progressives are like trying to advance like a good egalitarian economic agenda and like the evil Ronald Reagan is portraying this as really a racial redistribution scheme to like dupe white people into voting for things that will be bad for them. Desmond, I, again, I don't want to be like too harsh on – his actual analysis of this is a right, hundred – like Matthew Desmond is a brilliant scholar and I will not be here for any slagging of Matthew Desmond. <laughs> um, I'm here though because like – but like I think this is the question of like how the – Mental habits formed in academia when transposed to a different level of argument do a different kind of work. And we can say, OK, look, Matthew Desmond isn't running for office. And it's true he isn't running for office. But like also he has emerged from his PhD shell to try to make a statement to a, a mass educated public. And I don't think he did that just like because he was bored one afternoon. Like he's trying to persuade people of something. And so you are supposed to, when you attempt to make persuasive public arguments, I think you should think about the pragmatic aspects of rhetoric. And I think the question of whether left-wing intellectuals have been like overly schooled in what is rhetorically potent in progressive spaces and then they are misusing that in neutral spaces is like one that we should be self-critical about even if the intellectual dark web is hypocritical. So I don't necessarily disagree with that but you don't make policy by getting the largest number of Americans to agree with you, right? Like the issues that I've covered as a journalist, immigration and criminal justice, were until a couple of years ago marked by a certain amount of elite bipartisan agreement that something needed to be done and what the general contours of that might look like among a bunch of people who cared enough to say that it needed to be done, but not enough to actually do the fighting to get space on the legislative calendar to whip the bill, to tell incumbents who were worried about getting primaried by people to the ideological extremes that like they would build political cover for them. I think that the way that policies are actually getting made right now are much more through you increase the salience of a policy among many other changes your political coalition could do once in power, make it seem like the most important thing your side can do, and then make sure that you get the opportunity to do it. That appears to me to be the way that you actually get to success these days, much more than trying to persuade a bunch of different unlikely allies that that they should support this for facially neutral reasons that don't actually activate people who support the policy or people who oppose it. Yeah, and I think that there's definitely a sensibility of you know, how we talk about these issues and being very sensitive to how we talk about them. And it's, it's interesting that that also exists 
on the other side of this political sphere. And it's fascinating because the people who get very excited about things like talking about trade or something like that under this administration are just have to be very careful in how they phrase this because they have to talk a lot about how trade is good, but also American steel is great. And it, it's, it's interesting how that kind of tiptoeing around these specific issues takes place on both sides. But I will agree with Dara that like, if we had to go with getting a a plurality of Americans to agree on anything, I'm pretty sure we would have struck down bans on interracial marriage like five years ago. And so I think that there's very much of a sense that, you know, there needs to be a way to have intellectual conversations among groups of people who want to have those conversations and without attempting to extrapolate those onto the wider world. And I think that that's something, you know, it drives me insane when you see like this college professor put together this study and it's so controversial and ridiculous. And you're like, you look down, you're like this college professor at a school I have not heard of with a study of 15 people. Oh, wait, why do I care about this again? (laughs) Right. So, I mean, I agree. This is something that I think Dave Roberts was talking about that I've often had occasion to disagree with Josh Barrow about. And it's like, how do you impose message discipline on an entire society, right? And that's tricky and it's it's difficult. At the same time, like, I don't – I feel like there's an extent of playing dumb about some of this stuff going on from people who are on the progressive side. Like, people who do sort of – culture and ideas production work in the United States come very disproportionately from a certain political viewpoint. And that includes not just like explicit political commentary and academic stuff, but like writing about movies and television and and all kinds of things like that. And there is a, a team spirit and a desire, a collective desire to try to use those platforms and social influence that exists to nudge society in a more progressive direction. And I think the question of whether that is being pursued in an efficacious way or not is a relevant one. And I think, you know, to some extent, like a hard question, right? Jane, like you mentioned uh, Connor Friedersdorf's piece Mm -hmm. about this. And, you know, What Connor was saying essentially is that calling people racists when they aren't is like counterproductive and radicalizes them. And nobody is going to explicitly defend (laughs) making inaccurate charges against people. And I think like the harder topic for him and and for me, um, but that I wish he would acknowledge the complexity of, is that like accurate accusations can also be counterproductive, right? And like the question is, is like, how should you do that? Like, I have very mixed feelings about the blow up every time Trump says something that's racist, because it seems to me that turning American politics into a kind of symbolic struggle over whether saying kind of racist stuff sometimes is terrible or okay is just like objectively advantageous to Trump. But like, also, it bothers me. Like on the merits, like I do not feel comfortable just like sitting around and pretending that I can't see what's going on. But like I think that it's not 
productive. I, I don't think it like does useful work to like name and shame Trump at this point. Uh, maybe there was some earlier point in which naming and shaming Trump could have gotten party leaders to somehow jettison him or something. But like he's ensconced in power in the United States of America. And like objectively what immigrant communities need is his removal from office and replacement by someone who will deliver more humane treatment, not like strong words. But like I, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I genuinely don't know what to do. I, I'm currently like staring at my hands because this is something that, this I as an immigration reporter, this is obviously something I've thought a lot about and don't have good answers. I think that the best argument that I can make in favor of continuing to blow this stuff up is that there's actually a really compelling study that I just saw yesterday that. After Trump makes the really, like, egregious statements, there is a spike in anti-immigrant sentiment among his supporters, but that spike dissipates. And so that, for Trump, creates the political problem of you have to keep saying more and more outrageous stuff in order to keep activating this very politically powerful sentiment among your supporters. But it also means that the risks for immigrant communities from not the Trump administration but from people who support Donald Trump— are elevated in theory every time he does that. I think that it's really easy to overstate that. Uh, the reason that it's important to talk about what Trump has said in the past is that if we haven't actually seen like spikes in you know hate crimes, for example, it, the more we don't see that, the more irresponsible it seems to me to assert that we are definitely going to see that this time. But it is really hard when you have a head of government who is also a head of state, who is also the de facto leader of one of the two all-encompassing factions, you know, into which all public life is organized, saying things to differentiate in what respect he's saying them and what the effect is going to be on, like, that ongoing culture war, which isn't just a conversation we're having on the internet. It's something that people who are different from each other in America have to negotiate every single day as they go about their daily lives. Exactly. And I would be so fascinated, you know, if there is so if there are social researchers out there who have this. I am so interested in someone to do the actual work on the 2015-2016 campaign and seeing the degree to which you saw conservatives saying like, you know, what Trump said about John McCain was wrong and how they got blowback, but Trump does not. And the, But this idea that the same people who were so receptive to Trump's remarks would also be incredibly offended by someone saying, hey, those remarks were wrong. And I'm just I'm so interested in that dichotomy because it does not make sense to me. And I cannot imagine how, you know, it's so challenging to talk about these issues because at the very base of it, I have no answers. I don't know why this exists. I don't understand it. And that's I think that's partly why we do the work that we do is that we are trying to make sense of this, too. But I'm I'm so interested in understanding this concept of like if you insult Trump, that makes Trump stronger. But. If you know, if Trump says something insulting, that also makes him stronger. And it just is it's such a strange thing. And I'm so interested if anyone has real data on why this is. 
I'm going to let you have the last word on that. If you do have real data on yes. why this is, uh, please uh, come come to the Weeds Facebook group and let us know. We'd love to hear from you guys. Come, and let us reason together. Yes, yes. It, the discourse is excellent on the Weeds Facebook group. Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs> 